sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about an Air National Guard base poisoning the drinking water in Virginia. Also going to be touching on the current state of the Iran nuclear deal. Also going to be discussing the international reparations movement. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, the New York Times printed an analysis of the FBI raid on Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate with the title, quote, never before in American history, the FBI searches a former president's home. The raid was carried out apparently because Trump had taken a bunch of classified documents out of the White House to his private residence in Florida when he was finally convinced that his presidency was, in fact, over. The New York Times reports that the National Archives has been after those documents because the National Archives and Records Administration is an independent federal agency that preserves government documents. They've been after that stuff since last year. They spent most of last year going back and forth with Trump and his lawyers about what documents Trump had and trying to get him to return them. Trump, of course, did not want to. So in January of this year, an official from the National National Archives went to Mar-a-Lago, took a plane to Florida and retrieved, quote, 15 boxes of documents, gifts and other government property, end quote. The documents retrieved included sensitive national security information, including some that was marked classified. And ultimately, the National Archives informed the Justice Department that they thought that Trump had more classified documents in his possession, even though Trump's lawyers continued to claim that he had none. That's what this raid seems to be about, Trump's mishandling of government and possibly classified documents. And it's sure odd to me how Democrats who were screaming that there was nothing to Hillary Clinton's emails that literally exposed the plot to sabotage Bernie Sanders' campaign by elevating the worst Republican candidates, Ted Cruz and Donald Trump, and the fact that she destroyed whole hard drives containing government documents with a hammer. The same people are now cheering this raid on Trump's home because he kept government documents that he wasn't supposed to. That's just really hypocritical to me. And this is why I can't even take Democrats seriously anymore at all for any reason. The lack of principle and consistency is ridiculous. On the other hand, I sure don't sympathize with Trump and the GOP losing their minds over the FBI raid. I mean... We black radicals and anti-imperialists who know our history understand that the FBI is a fascist organization that has been used to not only silence dissent, but crush left movements throughout the history of this country. There has not been a domestic people's movement challenging racism, capitalism, white supremacy, unfair labor practices, unfair housing, you name it, that has not been surveilled, infiltrated, and attempted to be destroyed, sometimes using violence by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. 
We don't forget that the FBI's J. Edgar Hoover got his start and rose up the ranks by targeting black freedom fighters like Marcus Garvey and solidified his legacy with a whole building with his name on it by destroying the Black Panther movement, the American Indian movement, the student anti-war movement, and other left movements with the counterintelligence program or COINTELPRO. We don't forget that it was the FBI that sent Martin Luther King Jr. letters saying that he should kill himself, that they sent tapes of King allegedly having an affair with another woman to his wife, Coretta, which she vehemently denies never happened, y'all. I don't know why we don't believe that woman and trust the FBI instead on anything they said about a man that they waged a whole smear campaign against. We don't forget it was the FBI that gave false information to the L.A. Times, accusing actress Jean Seberg of having a sexual affair with a member of the Black Panther Party, which she did provide financial support to, but that led to her suicide. You all know the sordid and criminal history of the FBI and the Black Panther Party, right? The Black Liberation Army and so on and so forth. Those folks who are mad that the FBI is going after Trump, they ain't give one tinker's damn about the FBI ramping up the black identity extremist label against us and targeting the African People's Socialist Party over bogus claims of Russian influence just a few days ago. I don't feel sorry for Trump or his supporters who are all enraged over the FBI today when they were happy with the FBI coming after us before now. The GOP and their crocodile tears over this raid are not serious about defunding any FBI because they need them to continue to keep us under control. The Zen Education Project notes that today, August 10th, is recognized internationally as Prisoners' Justice Day, PJD, a day of solidarity and organizing with the incarcerated and remembrance of those who died behind bars living in inhumane conditions. The commemoration originates from the 1974 death by suicide of Eddie Nalen at the Millhaven Maximum Security Prison in Bath, Ontario, in Canada. Eddie was told that if he signed a form refusing to work, he would be transferred to a non-work unit. However, instead of being transferred, Eddie was punished and sent to solitary confinement. After 30 days, even though his request to return to general population was approved, Eddie was sent to segregation instead. On August 10th, while still in segregation, Eddie died by suicide. One year later, on August 10, 1975, prisoners at Millhaven held a memorial service, hunger strike, and work stoppage to draw attention to the conditions that led to Eddie's death. Many engaged in the protest knowing that they, too, would be punished with solitary confinement. By the mid-1990s, PJD had gone global, and while the strategies used to mark PJD have shifted over time, it continues to be an important day of remembrance and action for many. And it is a fitting remembrance for us in the U.S. as we continue to observe Black August since it was the FBI and its fascist dragnet of radical activists and freedom fighters that put many of our brothers and sisters that we honor this month behind bars in the first place incarcerated for the crime of daring to struggle against this fascist settler colonial system that they call 
the United States of America. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to it by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Ryan Kidweiler, an organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation in West Virginia. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Ryan, you recently published a piece with Liberation News discussing a recent study that was conducted by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention and the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry that found elevated uh, levels of what's called uh, forever chemicals in the drinking water and blood samples taken from residents of Martinsburg, West Virginia. And this appears to be uh, uh, related to uh, Martinburg's uh, proximity to an Air National Guards base. I was hoping you could tell us uh, some more uh, about this and what kind of impacts it has on the people there. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the forever chemicals that you're referring to, um, they're, they're PFAS chemicals. Um, so that's short for polyfluoroalkyl substances. PFAS for short. Um, so they're actually, you know, it's a, it's a family of, of compounds. There's thousands of different types of, of PFAS, substance, PFAS substances. And they've been used in all sorts of household products since, like, going back to the 1950s or so. But actually, the DOD has been using um, these substances in their um, firefighting foam. Um, so on, on different military bases across the U.S., um, they use this foam to put out fires. And this you can see how over time this, this seeps into the groundwater, um, into the drinking water of adjacent cities and towns, um, gets into the rivers and streams. And that's what happened here in Martinsburg. I mean, at the, at the Martin, Martinsburg um, Shepherd Field Air National Guard Base, They've been using this foam on base since the 1970s. Um, and so over time, this has gone into the drinking water. And, I mean, we've known um, the, the health effects of these of these compounds for decades now. Um, it's been linked to various types of cancers, uh, liver disease, birth defects. Um, even, like, vaccine effectiveness has gone down. Um, so real serious stuff. And, and um, they're just now, um, you know, actually doing something about it. Yeah, and the fact that they're just now doing something about it uh, over at Shepherd Field Air National Guard Base, which is, as you point out in your article, where the 167th Airlift Wing is uh, located, they have actually known about uh, levels of these forever chemicals, PFAS chemicals, since 2014, but they didn't do anything about it then. Why Why did they wait so long to respond to uh, the existence of these chemicals that are indeed dangerous and life-threatening? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so the EPA put out a. It wasn't until 2016 uh, that the EPA put out a you know a health advisory, um, uh, you know regarding these PFAS compounds and and the uh, there were two specific compounds actually mentioned in this in this health advisory. You know, like I said, there's thousands of different types of PFAS compounds and they called out two specific ones in their in their health advisory and and they said the combined concentration of these two specific uh, PFAS compounds can't exceed 70 parts per trillion. 
So obviously, um, you know, the, the PFAS concentrations in, in Martinsburg's waters far exceeded that 70 parts per trillion. So it wasn't until 2016 where there was any sort of, you know, health advisory from the EPA. And at that time, yes, the city of Martinsburg took the well offline. They put in a new treatment system, um, which which did, it did reduce the, the concentration of PFAS. Um, so, you know, the, the, the city's now saying like, yeah, well, we, we, we're in, um, we're in line with, with the health advisory from the EPA. It's no issue. But, um, I mean, that completely ignores that there's, you know, that only that only applies to the two specific uh, compounds that were cited in the health advisory. What about all the other PFAS compounds that were found in the water that, you know, we know the negative health effects of? Um, those haven't been, been addressed. And actually, this study that I show that I cited here from the CDC shows that the the concentrations are, you know, if you take into account the other PFAS compounds that were found, they far exceed that 70 parts per trillion that the EPA uh, listed out. Wow. And, you know, in, in hearing this, Ryan, it makes me think about uh, Cancer Alley in Louisiana, mostly poor and black uh, area where there are serious uh, health issues because of uh, the presence of industrial plant plants and what what those materials do to the health of the residents. And so I'm also wondering, I mean, what kind of health issues do we see in uh, the people of Martinsburg as a result of these forever chemicals? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's that's a, that's a really good point. And and when we look at for those that aren't familiar with Martinsburg, it's it's in the eastern panhandle of West Virginia. So you know when you when you think of Martins when you think of West Virginia, you know I, I think a lot of people probably think of you know mountains and you know hollers and hills. Um, but Martinsburg's actually only about an hour and a half away from DC, um, right along the I eighty one corridor. Um, it's a population of about nineteen thousand, um, but it's you know. 30% or so of residents live below the poverty line. Um, it's 14% black, which is um, a lot higher than other areas of West Virginia. So uh, same similar situation. I mean, it's, it's, it's poor working class people that are uh, being exploited and are suffering these, these negative uh, health side effects from, from the compounds. And this is not the only military installation where these chemicals have been found. And this means that it's not the only uh, community that surrounds military uh, installations where uh, these PFAS chemicals have been found. This is actually a pretty widespread problem across military bases and former bases across the country. But how widespread is it? Yeah, it's something like over 700 uh, military bases or former bases around the country are found to have um, PFAS contamination in the you know immediate areas surrounding the bases. So it's it's very widespread. Um, and and like I mentioned in the article, I mean this doesn't just affect military personnel or people that are working on the base. It, I mean it really affects all of the communities um, that are surrounding it. And now that and the DoD has has said that they're working on phasing out the use. Um, of these firefighting foams, um, but that's not expected to be complete until the end of 2024. So when you take into account the the fact that these that these are long lasting chemicals, I mean they don't they don't break down in the environment. That's why they're called forever chemicals. I mean two years. I mean that's another two years. That's that's serious. 
Yeah, totally. And you also note in your piece, uh, which I think is uh, important, about how even beyond the uh, military bases, there are also these uh, corporations that make everyday products that also contain some of these chemicals. So who are the corporations that are are responsible for this, uh, uh, Ryan? Because, I mean, that seems like something that uh, literally has an impact on people all across this country. Yeah, definitely. So, so two two of the big corporations are 3M and DuPont. Um, there's actually a lawsuit right now, um, you know, related to this Martinsburg incident um, against seven different corporations, including 3M and DuPont. Um, you know, for knowingly producing these products and selling them to consumers. Um, but one interesting thing I want to mention too in the in the piece um, or in the study that I cited is, you know, at the end of the at the end of the study, they they talk about different recommendations that uh, Martinsburg residents can take. You know, you can if you have your own private well, you can contact the city of Martinsburg for testing. But then it goes on to recommend that residents um, try to avoid products that contain these PFAS compounds as if, you know, it, you know, just putting the burden, um, you know, as we, as we know very well often happens, putting the burden on the individual consumer rather than asking the question, why are these PFAS compounds found in so many products that we use and consume on a daily basis? Yeah. And you do note, uh, that the PFAS chemicals, um, are actually found in uh, fish that are caught in the uh, streams and uh, creeks and rivers uh, throughout Martinsburg. And if the chemicals are found in the fish, then that means it's in the water. So it's not as if people just, you know, avoid this problem by avoiding particular products. I mean, if you go swimming, uh, if you, you know, go fishing, you're going to experience, uh, you, you're going to more than likely come in contact with these chemicals. And and I think this leads me to the question of what have you found uh, if you found anything, uh, any way for the people of the community of Martinsburg, the non-military folks, what have they been able to do in regard to petitioning the U.S. military, the Department of Defense, uh, the military base that where these chemicals are used for any kind of relief? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. And I'm going to be honest, I, I have not seen much going on in Martinsburg. I haven't seen much talk around this issue. That's part of why I wanted to write the article too. Um, it's just, it's not something that's being talked about um, to the degree that you would expect it to be. And I'm not saying, you know, there might be efforts that I'm not aware of. I don't want to belittle those, but um, it's, it, it, there is very little action, if any, going on around this other than the lawsuit that I mentioned. Um, and I, I think, and I don't want to speak for all West Virginians or all Martinsburg residents here, but I think a lot of people, at least people that we've talked to out on the street as PSL, a lot of people are disengaged um, with politics, especially lo- local politics, because they know, they understand, and that's that's. I mean, I I don't blame it, blame them at all. Um, a lot of people know and understand that, like the representatives that are supposed to be representing the people um, don't do that. You know, the system, the political structure doesn't work for them. And and people know that. And also I think too, when you're talking about, um, especially when you're talking about water contamination, I think unfortunately it's become so, you know, so common that people, people almost just expect, like people are not surprised that these chemicals are found in our water. So, um, 
unfortunately, I think it's just become so, um, you know, so common for things like this to happen that you just disengage from it. And, you know, Ryan, what you're describing in terms of Martinsburg, I think, is the case in a lot of poor working and oppressed communities um, in the United States. And even when you look at West Virginia, which is a poor state, of course, a state represented by Joe Manchin. And I think that the people in the rest of the country uh, have this impression that Manchin enjoys, you know, sort of a broad support within the state. And I mean, you know better than me, but uh, my impression is that's not uh, quite the case. But even when we talk about this uh, whole issue uh, in terms of the environment and uh, the climate issue, I feel like it really points to a core problem in terms of how capitalist production hurts the earth, it hurts uh, wildlife, and it hurts human beings. And so as such, it seems as though uh, the the capitalist system itself is what's really at the root of what we're seeing in uh, uh, West Virginia and the fact that it's tied directly to the U.S. war machine, I think, uh, makes that point even more stark. Absolutely. And that's, and that's why I don't, I, that's why I'm trying to, with, with the, with the piece, I tried to, you know, show, shed a little light on, on the importance of intersectionality between, um, you know, the climate movement, you know, environmental justice and, and anti-war and anti-imperialist movements. I, you can't with, with the, the military, just generally speaking with the military, being the largest carbon emitter on the planet. I mean, you can't talk about climate change without talking about the military. You can't talk about that without talking about why the U.S. military exists and what it's for. Um, You can't talk about that without talking about imperialism and capitalism. So, um, you know, the health of the planet, the health of the people, um, these two things can't be reconciled. We need a new system that actually works for the people, that works for the planet, um, because this isn't it. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the state of the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Syed Mohammed Mirandi, professor of English literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran. Dr. Mirandi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. And Dr. Mirandi, after almost a year and a half uh, after the U.S. and Iran began uh, trying to negotiate, uh, possibly returning to the Iran nuclear deal that was abandoned under Donald Trump, uh, the European Union has presented a kind of final proposal for uh, Iran and U.S. to consider in what appears to be uh, uh, perhaps the the last real chance for these talks to go through. Uh, Recently, Iranian foreign 
foreign minister, Hussein Amirab Alahian, uh, said the United States needs to have a, quote, realistic response to Iran's proposals in these uh, ongoing negotiations on the Iran nuclear deal. Now, uh, the U.S. Uh, mainstream media would uh, have us believe that, you know, negotiations have basically been stalled because of the, quote, uh, hardline administration in Iran under President Ibrahim Raisi. But uh, I'm sort of curious from your perspective, doctor, uh, how do you really see the state of things as it pertains to the uh, Iran nuclear deal as of now? And I mean, do you think that there's really any more room for talks if these current negotiations don't uh, pan out? Well, first, what we have to keep in mind is that the current text that's being discussed is uh, the result of months of negotiations. Uh, a few months ago, when the latest round of negotiations began between Iran and uh, the P4 plus one, uh, where the Americans were basically negotiating indirectly and continue to do so, back then what the Europeans and Americans were offering was much less than what is in this text. So the Iranians, through resistance, through sound logic, and through using and by using the leverage that they have, forced the uh, Americans and the Europeans to back down on guarantees, inherent guarantees, on sequencing, uh, and uh, on other issues that are linked to the, the nuclear deal, sanctions, the scope of sanctions. Uh, so the text that we have today is very different from what we had a few months ago. This text is basically a text where the Europeans and the Americans are saying, we can't retreat further. It's just too much for us. That's the message that they're sending. Now, it's for the Iranian government to sit down in Tehran and to take a close look at the text and see if it's acceptable to them. It's changed a lot, but we have a very bad experience with the United States and the Europeans. They systematically violated the deal under Obama. The Europeans abided by all of the U.S. policies under Obama. Under Trump, they tore up the deal. The Europeans, despite grumbling, they did exactly as Trump demanded. And Biden, too, of course, is pursuing Trump's policies of maximum pressure, so nothing really has changed. So with this dark history, the Iranians have to be extremely careful, uh, careful about, uh, about the, the deal. Now, the United, what the Iranians are looking for is the full implementation of the nuclear deal, and they want the United States to pay a heavy price this time around if it chooses to violate the deal. So... We have a text now and the Iranians are looking at it through that particular perspective that I've just now explained. Now, whether the Iranians will accept the text as it is or they will expect further changes, that we'll have to wait and see. But there is another issue that the Iranians are in, insistent upon, and that is that the accusations that were leveled at Iran through the IAEA Board of Governors that file has to be closed before a deal is implemented. The Iranians are saying that these accusations are political. The Board of Governors of the IAEA is a political body. It is not a technical body. They are government representatives. And Western governments have a huge amount of influence over the International Atomic Energy Agency. 
So they made a political decision to put pressure on Iran through false accusations. And of course, we all remember how before the last Board of Governors meeting, the head of the IAA went to Israel, a country, a, a regime that has nuclear weapons, to talk about Iran. So it shows how politicized the body has become. And then we also have WikiLeaks documents which show that the previous head of the IAEA, in order to get that position, promised the Americans that if they supported his bid to become the chief, he would support the United States on all key issues. So this is the state of affairs in the IAEA. And the Iranians are saying, since it is a political body, they have to make a political decision to close close the case. Why? Because if the Iranians sign a deal or a deal, and then the Americans start using this file, this these false accusations, to put pressure on Iran, the deal will fall apart. So the Iranians are saying the foundation of the deal has to be firm. And in order for that foundation to be solid, the accusations, the false accusations, they have to be dealt with, especially since the Iranians gave uh, responses, adequate responses, from their point of view at least, to the IAA about questions that they had. And the agreement was that they would close the case a few months ago, which they didn't. They did the exact opposite. Now the Iranians are saying they have to close the case. And, you know, Dr. Morandi, something else that is different about this uh, uh, deal, the text of this deal, that is very interesting. And I'm wondering your thoughts about why uh, Iran uh, took this uh took this uh, attack, that they are not um, demanding that the U.S. remove Iran's Islamic uh, Revolutionary Guards Corps from the official list of foreign terrorist organizations, and they're uh, dropping the insistence that the Biden administration provide guarantees that a future president will not withdraw from the deal, even if Iran upholds its commitments. Why, why would Iran uh, uh, back away from those two demands? Um, in this iteration of this deal? Well, the issue is that both of these so-called demands are myths that were created by Western governments and pushed through the Western media. The Iranians never set the removal of the guards from the U.S. FTO, the Foreign Terrorist Organization, list as a precondition for a deal. In fact, the Iranians are fine with it because the Iranians have also declared CENTCOM a terrorist organization. So as long as the guards are a terrorist organization for the Americans, the U.S. armed forces in the region is also a terrorist organization for Iran. And the Americans are going to have to deal with that. And it has implications when ships meet each other, when there are, um, when, you know, when, when there are events taking place in, in the Persian Gulf region or the Indian Ocean or in, in the airspace of, of the Persian Gulf region. Uh, these communications between different countries become necessary. So the United States is taking risk by behaving this way. But the Iranians never set this as a precondition. The Iranians have said that it is on the table, like everything else, but it's not a precondition. The same is true about a future president. The Iranians have not demanded anything that goes beyond the scope of authority that Biden can provide. What the Iranians want from Biden is what he, as the president of the United States, can give. And the Iranians have good lawyers. They know exactly what the U.S. president can give and what he cannot give. But the American government, through the media, is trying to portray Iran as unreasonable, irrational, 
Whereas no, it's 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 all it's both in both cases it's basically fake news. Yeah, and you know, Dr. Morandi, I'm going to ask a question that isn't dealt with uh, explicitly enough here in America, and that is. Just who is the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps? What do they do, and why is it that uh, that institution is such a target for the U.S.? Well, the IRGC is a part of the armed forces. And like any other military, they, they protect the sovereignty of the country. But the IRGC also has a mandate uh, to uh, be active outside the country's borders if there is a specific threat to the country or to the region. So that's why the IRGC, when Syria was about to fall to Al-Qaeda and ISIS, uh, the IRGC was sent to Syria at the request of the government in Damascus, the legitimate government in Damascus. Or when Iraq was falling to ISIS, the Iranian IRGC went to Iraq and prevented the fall of Baghdad and other key cities at the at the request of the Iraqi government, so the IRGC and of course the same is true in Lebanon. The, Iran aided Hezbollah and the resistance to um, to force Israeli occupation forces to leave Lebanon because they were occupying half of Lebanon for a long period of time. Then they retreated and kept a part of Lebanon, and now they've been forced to leave the country. So the Iranians have been helping this liberation organization or the Palestinians in Gaza who are living in an open-air prison to, to defend themselves, just like Iran supported Nelson Mandela, the ANC, in their resistance to apartheid South Africa. Iran was supporting, when Western governments were supporting the apartheid regime in South Africa, the Iranians were supporting the resistance. And uh, that model continues to exist today as well. Yeah. And, you know, I I do wonder about the issue of sanctions, because uh, under the Trump administration, even though he formally certified that Iran was in compliance with the JCPOA, he added that the country would be subject to non-nuclear terrorism-related sanctions. Uh, Trump didn't recertify Iran's compliance in 2017. Biden continued with the sanctions. What happens to those sanctions now that the issue of the IRGC is no longer on the table. Well, sanctions related to the nuclear deal have been discussed, and uh, I can't go into detail. But a lot of the sanctions have been remo- removed, and uh, or, or or will be removed if there is a deal. But the two sides still have differences. But we have to see if Iran agrees to this text. But of course, the, the less Americans cooperate. Uh, the less the Iranians give at the negotiating table as well. So, uh, for example, Iran's nuclear um, technology, which has rapidly developed since Trump uh, left the nuclear deal, those advances, uh, that technology will be preserved. Some equipment will be dismantled, but it will be dismantled in a way where it can be easily restored. That equipment, or, um, or or those parts of the nuclear fuel cycle, uh, or those centrifuges, let's say, that are going to be put in storage, they can easily be uh, put together again. 
And so Iran, if the United States violates the deal, Iran could quickly go back to um, producing enriched uranium at a very fast pace like it does today. So there's, there's give and take. There's a lot of give and take at the negotiating table. Again, I don't know if what is on the table now is sufficient for Iran. Iranian senior officials are, I assume, discussing it as we speak in different meetings. But uh, what is important for Iran, and one of the things that was discussed in detail by lawyers, is that the United States will not be able to have spillover in, in, uh, with regards to the sanction regime. In other words, if like I'm sanctioned and then you work with me, then um, let's say as, an, as an, another Iranian, let's say I, a, a better example would be if I go to a bank that's sanctioned by the Americans and I deal with that bank, the Americans can't sanction me. They can only sanction the bank. They can't use the IRGC sanctions or, or as an excuse to spread the sanctions regime across the country, if you get what I'm saying here. So there are, there was a, a lot of negotiations have taken place to make sure the Americans can't expand the sanctions regime uh, through such means. Yeah. And also, I mean, as ever, doctor, I mean, what then do you think is uh, the holdup for uh, the United States in terms of how they're sort of grappling with these uh, uh, negotiations as, you know, at least in my humble opinion, sort of the the core reason why uh, things continue to be held up here? Well, the Americans need a deal, obviously, because of the global economic crisis and the uh, the problem of oil and gas that exists and the coming winter that will um, drive oil and gas prices even higher during this global economic crisis. But on the other hand, there is a large segment of the American political regime or establishment that is extremely and irrationally hostile towards Iran. And they uh, are trying to prevent Biden from making a deal. So as we approach the, or as the United States approaches the November midterm elections, that that is something that I, I assume uh, Biden's people will be taking into account. Yeah. And of course, this is a question in regard to the upcoming elections in Israel. Obviously, Israel has been trying to, from what it seems to me, uh, continually trying to start a a war with Iran. Uh, What does this deal mean in regard to uh, relations between the U.S., Iran and Israel, which is always a factor in uh, relations between the United States and Iran? Well, Israel doesn't want to start a war because if, if it fights a war with Iran, it would lose. It's a small country. Half of the population is the Palestinian population that the Israelis are busy subjugating. They, they don't have the power to, to fight with Iran and its allies. So what the Israelis want to do is they, and what they've always been doing, is they've been trying to create tensions or escalate tensions between Iran and the United States. The Israelis would like to see conflict, military conflict between Iran and the United States. They they are quite willing to sacrifice American lives for their own interests. But I, I don't think that the Israelis have the, the amount of influence they would like to have. Otherwise, Americans wouldn't have given so many concessions uh, and they wouldn't have retreated from so many of their positions that they uh, had a few months ago at the negotiating table. 
Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Morandi, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the international struggle for reparations. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Anthony Rogers Wright, Director of Environmental Justice with New York Lawyers for the Public Interest. Anthony, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Good to be here as always. We're definitely glad to have you on to talk about this, particularly now, Anthony, as you are in Colombia and you have uh, a witnessed the historic inauguration of the progressive uh, coalition historic uh, pacto historico government of uh, Petro Gustavo and Francia Marquez, uh, the first uh, uh African-descended vice president of the country, certainly uh, causing ripples throughout Colombia and the region. But something else that has happened that is a part of the uh, platform of the Pacto Historico that's very connected to the struggle for uh, liberation and justice for all African-descended people around the world is the issue of reparations, because quiet has been kept. Uh, The issue of reparations is a central theme or a recurring theme of the platform and the issues uh, discussed by uh, Gustavo uh, Petro and uh, Francia Marquez, definitely. And uh, representatives of the Institute of the Black World of the 21st Century, IBW, and the National African American Reparations Commission, the NAARC, were actually uh, also uh, uh, present uh, for the inauguration. And there was apparently a meeting uh, uh, there in Colombia after the inauguration uh, among these groups of people to get together to talk about the issue of global reparations. So fill us, fill us in on what was talked about at this meeting and how serious is uh, this conversation about global reparations now that there is a new government in Colombia and the issue is being raised to the level of the presidency. Yes, Sister Jackie. Well, well, first, thank you so much for having me on, as always. Um, even just hearing you say the names of Colombia's new leaders gives me goosebumps because it is a demonstration and manifestation of what happens when principled movements come together and do the work of, of liberation. So I want to start there. The second thing I'll say is a little bit more tongue-in-cheek, but you know good things are happening in Colombia when Senator Ted Cruz of Texas takes to the floor the next day to condemn the election. So so um, that to me solidified that they're doing the, the right thing uh, down here in Colombia. Um, on the issue of reparations, um, we need to talk about the massive juxtaposition between the rhetorical um, aspect of reparations uh, in the United States 
versus the actual movement towards reparations that we're seeing here in, in Colombia and, and in other um, um, nations in, in um, so-called Latin America. Um, you know, what was said first and foremost was that, you know, there cannot be reparations without truth and reflection. That, that's what really stood out to me. Um, as you may know, Sister Jackie, um, uh, Colombia recently concluded uh, their, their, their truth-telling commission, a very large volume of work um, that um, uh, now uh, President De Petro um, uh, alluded to during his um, inaugural speech, and uh, Vice President De uh, Mariquez also alluded to during many of her speeches after um, she, she was also sworn in. So I would say that, that that's where we have to start, is this, is this idea of, of truth-telling and, and reflection on why we need reparations in the first place. Because as you know, Sister Jackie, back in the United States, there are a lot of people using ideas to conflate reparations with investments in uh, black communities, right? We've heard, uh, for instance, of um, Majority Whip uh, James Clyburn, Congressman Clyburn, talk about like a 10-20-30 program that would invest in, in these communities, and people are conflating that as reparations. But there hasn't been the discussion. There hasn't been the truth-telling necessary in the United States. Um, you both know this better than I do, the attacks on so-called critical race theory, any semblance of telling the truth in the United States about its brutal history of land theft, colonization, patriarchy, and white supremacy gets shut down immediately, even by the liberal press. So that, that's, that's that juxtaposition that I think is, is very, very, very important. And then, you know, just in um, the meetings themselves, right, which were in some, um, uh, some ways uh, um, sponsored by and welcomed uh, by the, the new administration, you can see a difference in really taking it seriously, not moving so fast, right, understanding that there is urgency. But as uh, the sister Adrian Marie Brown reminds us, it's also urgency that got us to this moment. So we have to be careful. We have to be intentional. And those were my main takeaways, Sister Jackie, from um, having the honor of, of taking part um, in that meeting. And I promise to send you tons of pictures and recordings um, once I get back to the state. You know, I'm waiting for them because, you know, I'm very jealous and and absolutely wanted to be there. But I, I read a quote uh, from uh, Francia Marquez about the issue of reparations that I, I want to read to you. And I, I want to get your thoughts on what she said and what this means, um, what you think this means, what you saw it kind of coalescing into in regard to uh, policy and how this new administration intends to map this out. She said, the time has come to discuss historical reparations for Afro-descended and indigenous peoples in the Americas, in the region. No country in Latin America Latin America can get out of this debate. It is enough to say that there is a historical debt with these peoples. During the campaign, I said, and when will we pay for it? The effects of slavery, colonialism, and racism that the Afro-descendant, Rezal, and Palenquero peoples continue to experience in the region must be compensated. The effects of colonialism that the indigenous peoples continue to experience must be addressed. If there is a country in Latin America that has not had slavery, raise your hand. So if it has had slavery and colonialism, it must recognize the native and indigenous peoples, but it must also recognize the Afro-descendant population recognition as a political actor. Now, I mean, we have heard uh, uh, 
snippets of, of Francia Marquez speaking, but clearly on this issue, the passion uh, of uh, the people and and the, the pleas of the people for justice ring clearly through. I do wonder, how does that passion uh, that is being uh, uh, raised up in this administration, what kind of impact is that having uh, on the governments in the region? Of course, other leftist governments are certainly welcoming uh, this kind of platform and this kind of talk because they are uh, are calling for the same thing. But certainly it's not popular uh, everywhere in the region. So how do you think uh, this uh, type of... of, of, how do you think this is going to play out uh, in regard to policy and how uh, Marquez and Petro, Petro and Marquez, will be able to work in the region to realize these goals? Mm-hmm. Well, Sister Jackie, I'm going to make you a little more jealous um, right now when I say these conversations were occurring while we were salsa dancing <laughs> the night of the inauguration. <laughs> and I would tell you that um in addition to all the Francia, Francia chants, one of the things that the Afro-Colombians were reflecting on specifically, what brought them to tears was the commitment of the Petro Marquez um, administration to open up embassies and therefore the discussion with Africa. But this has to be a, 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 a diaspora pan-African project, right? It, it can't just be one region. It has to be a, a, a global discussion. And so those commitments right there, you can see the tears in the eyes of the afro Colombians, because that, nothing like that has ever been said before. They desire this relationship um, with, with Africa, uh, Sister Jackie, just like they desire this relationship with indigenous um, 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 peoples from across the world, because th- this is like uh, colonization and white supremacy is a global threat, right? It's a global scourge, so it's going to require a global resistance, principal global resistance, to confront and eventually uh, 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 eviscerate it. Um, now, uh, so that's, that's one example. The other example is, I think, just right there, Sister Jackie, in the, the powerful quote that you just shared with us from um, um, uh, Vice President Marquez. You see what she is doing autumn, like, right away. Um, the, the same thing that my dear indigenous uh, sister and warrior Tara Hauska has said to me since we first met almost 10 years ago, that black and indigenous liberation are tied together. It, it, it must be tied together, right? And and because, you know, we've, we've experienced uh, nuance and also similar impacts from uh, global colonization and, and, and white supremacy. So um, th- w- you know as well as I do, Mr. Jackie, that uh, the vice president of Colombia does not mince words, okay? When you look into her eyes and you look at the way she speaks to people, it, it, it comes from a lens of accountability, uh, uh, Jackie, a lens of, I'm now, I'm now accountable to these people, and I expect them to hold me um, I'm accountable, which is not to say this is going to be easy. Um, I, I, I do think that it was good form of uh, President uh, to invite other leaders um, from Latin America to come to the inauguration. And he addressed them directly, Sister Jackie, and challenged them to join him. And, you know, based on the faces on the stage, it seemed like they're, they're, they're ready to, to embrace this challenge. And it's going to be more important, Sister Jackie, for them to come together. Because, if, you know, if you think the, the white backlash against a neoliberal like Barack Obama was bad, 
right? No, there's going to be even more white backlashes, I believe you alluded to, against a true leftist and revolutionary administration like Petro and, 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 and Marquez. So it's going to be even more important to bring the region together, which is to say nothing of potential interventions and um, interruptions or any um, um, ways to otherwise upend this beautiful movement coming from uh, the United States empire. Ted Cruz's statements on the Senate floor, um, um, to me, right, elucidate that threat exactly. So, um, again, this is not going to be easy. You know, um, we we don't have to lower expectations, but we have to understand this is a four-year administration that is kicking off a a, a 40 to 50-year project, if not longer. And and I think that uh, both the president and the vice president of Colombia understand that. And I think it's really important that uh, representatives of uh, IBW, uh, the 21st century, and the NAARC were there as well as yourself, because they are the representatives of the diaspora who are in this part of the world, on, on in North America, on this particular rock. So why is this conversation being had very seriously at the presidential level in Colombia so important for the issue of reparations that we are having in this country? You know, um, one of the things that I offered when I, again, I had the honor of, of attending and taking part in that discussion, Sister Jackie, was that it is becoming more and more clear to me that there will never be reparations in the United States until there's reparations in countries like Colombia, right? Um, it was, um, um, not ironically, but as we know, Western Revolution, you know, was kicked off by the Revolutionary Republic of IET. And, and that is what spread revolution throughout the uh, Western Hemisphere, which is probably why they treat Haiti the way they do to this day. So um, I think that's why it, it was so important, because what we saw, again, with the election of, of Petro and Marquez was the result of a true, principled, um, um, and operational movement, right? Not just using the term movement, but actually demonstrating what that looks like. I would argue we have not seen that in the United States in some time, if ever. So that's why it's extremely important that it's, I mean, you know, even um, the 1996 Hamez Principles for Democratic Organizing talks about um, embracing a bottom-up you know, organizing model. And I think that that's, that gives uh, lots of credence to why it needs to start here in Colombia, spread across the world, and then eventually the empire in the United States will have no choice um, uh, but to embrace it and accept it. And I think, of course, this leads me to the obvious question. What do we do with that knowledge? What do we do with, you know, the reactionary faction of the uh, U.S.-based reparations movement? And I hate to even call them that. But, the you know, the folks who are uh, ADOS and FBA who who completely divorce the idea of reparations from an international struggle in the in the face of this history historic conversation in the face of this historic election in Colombia. What what do we do with, with those folks in that conversation? I mean, you know, it, it's the same thing um, that we have to be careful of, that we, you know, should have been more careful of during the 1960s uh, civil rights epoch. Uh, Sister Jack, we have these conversations all the time with um, our dear leaders and brothers like Aja Mubaraka and, and Black Alliance for Peace. Um, is that, like, we have to make sure that we isolate those those false counter-revolutionary narratives, bring them to the light, and, and expose them for what they really are. Who, who is funding, you know, these, these, these folks? Who is really up uh, 
pulling the strings. You know, I like to use the term alabaster puppet master. Who, who, who are they that are really influencing those counter-revolutionary and faux-revolutionary uh, um, um, formations? So that's that's on us, you know. Uh, to, like, one, they do not speak for us, you know, and, and so that's why it's important to have formations um, like BAP and uh, radio programs like the one that you're hosting right now and that I'm on right now to tell the truth, uh, uh, Sister Jackie. I've always said that one of the p- first uh, of the five points of intervention against colonization, white supremacy, and patriarchy is seizing and controlling the narrative. The narrative represents the seed, and everything grows from there. You have uh, a tainted seed. You're going to have tainted narrative. You're going to have tainted organizing, tainted policies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's on us to continue that work of BAP, of Ajamu, of so many other uh, uh, revolutionaries to call out and confront the counter-revolutionary and false revolutionary narratives. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Anthony, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, August 10th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices and comrades. That's y'all to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary. Here in Washington, D.C., you can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure live on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Gloria Lariva, coordinator of the Cuba and Venezuela Solidarity Committee and co-founder of the Hatue Project, which you can check out at H-A-T-U-E-Y-Project.org. Gloria, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jackie and, and Sean. Take care. Absolutely. And 
You know, Gloria, a, a, a fire that has raged on for nearly five days in the city of Matanzas, Cuba, has largely been controlled, uh, according to reports. And this is a fire that has killed at least one person, uh, injured 128 others. Fourteen firefighters are still reported missing with 20 people hospitalized. And also uh, uh, 4,900 people were forced to evacuate as well. Colonel Daniel Chavez, who's the second in command of Cuba's firefighting department, has said that uh, the fire could keep burning for the next couple of days, but that he doesn't uh, expect it to grow in size. Now, of course, this fire is coming at a time that is particularly difficult for Cuba, a country that, of course, was already and really always facing difficult conditions because of uh, the criminal uh, unilateral blockade directed by the United States. States. But Gloria, to begin, I was hoping you could tell us just what happened uh, in Matanzas uh, uh, in regards to this fire. What are the impacts that we're seeing so far and how has it been unfolding? Yes, thank you. Well, Friday night, there was a lightning storm of which a lightning ray hit one of the tanks. And that's what set off this whole catastrophe. The super tanker base is a major uh installation of at least four fuel tanks that hold or gasoline or fuel at any time of tens of thousands of cubic meters each. Uh, And what happened with one of them exploding was that soon all four neighboring tanks also took hold in fire. And when each one caught fire, it set off a massive, a massive flame in the sky And, of course, with that, the smoke that even reached Havana. They say that there's no real major incidence of people who've been affected with respiratory problems. But it is still a very severe situation. As you said, the fire is almost out because basically the fuel has been used up. And it has had major repercussions. For example, the 1,200 kilowatt main electrical generating plant of the country, which is in Matanzas nearby, which is called the Antonio Guiteras plant, it is only now running at 200 kilowatts rather than 1,200 because it had to shut down for a couple of days during the fire since there wasn't water to run the plant and the water was needed for the fire. Right now, I mean, I was in uh, Cuba in July, late July, this past month, with a delegation of about 27 people. And we witnessed the experience of Cubans right now this summer that every zone, every neighborhood goes through eight hours of blackout at least a week, sometimes more depending on how much fuel there is. And now, of course, it will be much more. Much of the fuel in those tanks was headed, was directed toward gasoline in the city of Havana and also in Matanzas. Matanzas is a province to the east of Havana. But the fuel is not only just for cars, and that's bad enough. It's for buses, for transport. It's for uh, running the gasoline. I mean, I'm not gasoline. It's for running the garbage trucks, the sanitation trucks. And they can't run now. There's so little fuel in the country. So without being able to collect garbage, the mosquitoes increase. 
the fumigation against mosquitoes is has has been greatly affected. So what you have right now this summer, and greatly compounded by this fire, is the a huge increase in dengue, hemorrhagic dengue, which is a disease caused by the vector of the Aedes aegypti mosquito. So these things are all adding on to a hot, hot summer. You know, the planet is warming up deeply. And it's it's a hardship for the Cuban people. But I wish to say that, you know, when you see what the firefighters did, it's true. There were 17 people missing, but all firefighters. Two were located in the hospitals, but 14 are probably dead. One One firefighter's body was found. And these are the heroes who, despite this conflagration, still were there to fight, and many of them died. <clears throat> there are heroic people in the civil defense, the people of Matanzas, the people all over the country which are contributing as they can, and the solidarity of the world, from Mexico and Venezuela, which sent firefighters and foam trucks to help bring down the fire. There's a lot of solidarity from various countries, including Russia also, and Nicaragua. In the U.S., quite a number of groups, including the one that you mentioned, the Atue Project, were collecting money to get goods to send right away. Yeah, and you know, you talked about how, you know, the uh, island nation is facing this crisis with the fire uh, that is exacerbated by climate change uh, because the planet is heating up and they're fighting, you know, the rise of of uh, uh, pest-borne diseases because now they don't have the fuel to fuel trucks to deal with, uh, you know, uh, uh, fumigating and, and even sanitation. How does the blockade, particularly the additional 243 measures that were imposed during the Trump administration, that the Biden administration has not only uh, uh, not uh, uh, said anything about, but he's not rolled them back. uh, And he continues to uphold this blockade against Cuba. How has this blockade made this type of a situation even more difficult for the Cuban government and the people of Cuba to be able to combat and the people to recover from it. Exactly, Jackie. That's that's the real natural disaster is the U.S. blockade because it's a deliberate, longstanding, 60-year, massive program uh, with, with actually thousands of projects involved in the blockade to try to strangle and to kill the Cuban revolution, really killing the Cuban people, to force them to surrender to U.S. domination. And they have not succeeded, but it doesn't mean that the U.S. isn't trying. So, for example, why why is Cuba short of fuel? It's not just because of this fire, although that's a major development. It's because in 2019, the Trump administration cut off the 34 shipments on a regular basis that were coming from Venezuela to Cuba. Those shipments of oil were really essential to the whole economy. And in exchange, Cuba provides what is right now 23,000 medical doctors who provide health care in Venezuela for free. It's, an, it's a very fair, equal exchange. 
Cuba has its human capital, and Venezuela has its oil. But in 2019, that oil was blocked by the United States ever since. Well, how can the U.S. do that? You know, I was with this group in Cuba, and someone said, how, how can they do that? Do, do they have ships that block them physically? No. It's the power of the U.S. banking system, which dominates in the, in the world, the international banks, and, and, and controlling all the insurance companies. So what the U.S. did was say, we're cutting off your insurance if you continue to ship. And so that's how they blocked the shipments. Other uh, ships were also blocked from Liberia and Greece. And then the Japanese, I mentioned this before, the Japanese National Company of Gas mining and electricity, they have announced that they have to cancel their planned geo uh, exploration for oil and other energy sources in Cuba because Cuba has oil off the shore due to threats of sanctions by the U.S. government. This is an economic war. It's genocide and it's illegal by international law. But we know what the U.S. does. It completely ignores international law. It, it's, it's, it's above it. The aim is, again, against the Cuban Revolution for being an example of how a people in power of their resources, of their destiny, can actually resolve the problems of their population, which they have done so magnificently despite the problems. Yeah, and speaking of Gloria, I want to talk about the response of the U.S. government to the fire in Cuba. Um, not long after uh, the blaze ignited, uh, uh, as we were mentioning earlier, so different governments responded. Uh, matter of fact, Cuban President Miguel Diaz Canal uh, tweeted in gratitude to the governments of uh, Venezuela, Chile, Russia, as you mentioned, and Mexico. Uh, he also said, "Quote: We also appreciate the offer of technical advice." from the U.S. And so in a time like this, all the U.S. has to offer is technical advice. And it is, you know, just an offer instead of doing uh, the one thing uh, that would critically address this issue. And so many issues, really the main issue facing uh, the entire country of Cuba, which is uh, uh, the blockade. And I feel like that just just says so much. And it's important, I think, to really highlight this because, see, today um, you have people that like to quibble and come up with all kinds of excuses of why the blockade is in place. There are people who say that the blockade is necessary and all those sorts of things and that it somehow is in place to, you know, promote human rights and democracy in Cuba, when in reality, the Washington, the, U, the United States government from the very beginning has been completely unambiguous and clear about why the blockade needed to be in place. And I'm talking specifically about an April 6, 1960, uh, a document submitted by an American diplomat named uh, Lester D. Mallory that I want to uh, read from real quick. And I believe that this was only made uh, uh, public in the 90s. It says, subject, the decline and fall of Castro. Salient considerations respecting the life of the present government of Cuba are, one, the majority of Cubans support Castro. Two, there is no effective political opposition. Three, Fidel Castro and other members of the Cuban government espouse or condone communist influence. Four, communist influence is pervading the government and the body politic at an amazingly fast rate. 
five. Militant opposition to Castro from without Cuba would only serve his and the communist cause. And six, the only foreseeable means of alienating internal support is through disenchantment and disaffection based on economic dissatisfaction and hardship. Gloria, I don't know that they could have spelled this out any more clear than Mallory did in this document. And when we look at sanctioned regime, the U.S. aims at other countries like Nicaragua, Venezuela, the DPRK, Syria, Iran, and others, it also seems clear that this is a a playbook, a frame, if you will, that the U.S. has used all around the world. And so the fact that the U.S. knows very well what the impact of this blockade is. And even in a moment like this of a natural disaster that has clearly taken a humanitarian toll and will continue, I think, even past these most immediate impacts and even still won't lift the blockade, I think shows two things. Number one, the fundamental inhumanity of U.S. imperialism. And two, the fact that any pretense that the blockade is about anything else besides out and out regime change in Cuba is, is just a lie. You know what I mean? Yes, I'm glad you read that document from Lester Mallory of 1960, because it's basically carved in stone in United States policy. That is the guideline for the U.S., is make them suffer, make them starve, deny them medicine, to force them to kneel to the United States. And as you say, it's a policy that it applies around the world whether Iraq or you can name a million places, Palestine. And yet I think that the people of the United States are kept completely in the dark about what is happening to Cuba by the United States. The U.S. people don't want to cause suffering. The U.S. people believe in democracy and freedom. Uh, I don't think they know exactly what it is. I think we're lied to on a daily basis. In fact, The New York Times in this crisis only has one article from the day that the fire broke out, uh, the following day, the Saturday morning, just to report that it happened and say nothing else. When meanwhile, in the United States, many organizations are gathering money, putting together, making an appeal to the United States people to, to help our brothers and sisters in Cuba. There's a call of let Cuba live. Stop this war on Cuba in the name of the American people. They don't speak for us. So I think that, for example, the United States turns the truth on its head. There's one major obstacle to Cuba being able to have, for example, transactions with banks that you have to have. This is an international, modern world we live in. So for Cuba to buy items, food, medicine from abroad, they have to have a banking account. And yet the U.S. searches for every bank in the world that accepts Cuban transactions, even in U.S. dollars or euros, and finds those banks by billions of dollars to then force them to cut Cuba off. And one of the main reasons that the U.S. is able to do this is, uh, the I think, the last act by Trump against Cuba in January 2021, 
when Biden was about to take office. Uh, one of the 243 measures that Jackie mentioned by Trump against Cuba was declaring Cuba a sponsor of state terrorism. That's an enormous and false charge to lay against the whole Cuban people. It is actually Cuba that's been the victim of terrorism. 3,478 Cubans have died by U.S.-sponsored terrorism of CIA agents, of fascists that the U.S. has employed, trained, you know, including the Bay of Pigs invasion or the bombing of a Cuban airliner in 1976. It killed 73 people by known terrorists. And yet putting this jacket on Cuba of terrorism means that countries have to comply and not do business with Cuba. Now, Biden comes in, remember, one of the big promises that Biden made was that he would reverse policy that Trump had passed, these 243 measures, and go back to the policies of Obama, which was some lightening up of this pressure on Cuba. Not entirely, of course, but some relief. And what did Biden do? He just went on a tear against Cuba, has not changed any of those measures, and in fact has not lifted this designation of Cuba as a state sponsor of terrorism. It's such an outrage. And I want to repeat again, the people of the United States do not know this. They do not know that the billions of dollars in tax dollars directed against Cuba, just as one country, is, is the money that we pay in taxes. Well, we don't have health care. Well, we don't have a student debt relief. Well, you know, we suffer all these things that we have, including uh, massive evictions that people are facing. If they only knew, for example, that in Cuba there's no such thing as evictions. As a result, there's no homeless phenomena in Cuba because people have a true right to housing. This is why the U.S. wages this war against the island of Cuba. Absolutely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Gloria Lariva. And Gloria, I want to pick back up on the point you made just before the break when you were talking about how Cuba has been designated as a state sponsor of terror. And right now I'm looking at the website of the U.S. Department of State and I'm on their state sponsors of terrorism page. And I was actually surprised to find that there was only four countries that are designated uh, as state sponsors of terrorism. It's Cuba, the DPRK or North Korea, Iran, 
and Syria. And Syria has a distinction of uh, having spent the longest time on this list, uh, getting this designation in December of 1979. I also feel like I should mention briefly that right now, as we speak, there is a bipartisan effort underway to put Russia on the list of the state sponsor of terrorism because of the war in Ukraine. And this is being led by uh, Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal and Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. And so, Gloria, this to me is pretty clearly just sort of a short list of uh, enemy states um, by the United States, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, picking uh, certain countries to to target here. And I mean, my question is, what did Cuba do exactly to even be on this list? Because, I mean, in my opinion, it's Cuba that has been the victim of state sponsored terrorism from the U.S. for over half a century at this point. And so what is the logic or the reasoning of the justification for Washington to put Cuba on this list? Well, Sean, it's because the U.S. hasn't been able to make Cuba give up its revolution, its socialist project. And therefore, if this doesn't work, well, let's add something else. This doesn't work, add something else. It's really remarkable how much the U.S. targets every economic aspect of Cuba. Um, for example, Cuban doctors who work by the many thousands, 23,000 in Venezuela for in exchange for oil, even though Cuba's not getting the oil, they still provide the doctors for free in Venezuela. But in some countries, the countries that have resources, you know, like South Africa or Brazil, previously, those Cuban doctors, when they when they work in those countries, going to the most remote areas that doctors of those countries will not serve, and they provide healthcare to people of the, the most, um, you know, marginalized people. Cuba does get some income from that. It's professional services that they provide, and that money that Cuba gets, in addition to a larger income for the doctors, the money that Cuba gets is used to buy medicine for the Cuban population. So what does the U.S. do? Uh, they have a program called the Cuban Medical Professional Parole Act, which is still standing. It began in the second Bush administration. And it says basically any Cuban doctor in the world on an internationalist mission, they don't call it internationalist, but anybody serving abroad can immediately contact the embassy or consulate in the country they're working in. <laughs> and say they want to defect. You have to say you want to defect from your government and you will be brought immediately to the United States and sped through the process of becoming a doctor in the U.S. It's, it's a, an enhanced brain drain. But the purpose of it is to try to weaken Cuba's a creative source of income. And But the effect of it is to harm the people who depend on that health care. Uh, the government, the right-wing government of Bolivia after the fascist coup of Añez, they kicked out the Cuban doctors. And if you read these really terrible stories about the pandemic, Bolivians were dying in the street from the pandemic without Cuban doctors to help. And by the way, I was once treated by a Cuban doctor in a hospital in Bolivia, you know, for free. In Brazil, Cuba lost hundreds of millions of dollars of income when the right-wing president, Bolsonaro, evicted all the, pre all the doctors. Now, on the other hand, now we have 
Mexican president, López Obrador, who has been really great in challenging the U.S. on the blockade. He has spoken up to defend Cuba. He has even called for the abolition of the Organization of American States for doing the bidding of the United States against Cuba. And López Obrador just announced that many doctors from Cuba are welcome in the country. In fact, a whole crew of Cuban doctors have now arrived in Mexico to provide health care. And he said, and many more will be coming. That is a kind of sister brotherhood that Latin American countries would engage in much more if it weren't for the U.S. monstrous policies pressuring these governments. So Peru, Panama, and other countries have actually uh, expelled the Cuban doctors at a great cost to the people of those countries and to Cuba as well. This is why I think that When you look at Cuba or Venezuela or Nicaragua or other countries, we have to look at Latin America as a whole and the solidarity that's being blocked by the United States. Yeah, you know, and as we're talking about uh, Cuba being uh, designated a a state sponsor of terror, a a letter has surfaced uh, that comes from U.S. Senator Marco Rubio, who is urging the FBI, we're also talking about, you know, the utility of the FBI in this country now that so many Democrats are, and and folks in general, are seemingly very happy that the FBI raided uh, Mar-a-Lago, but this is the same FBI that, you know, undercut, surveilled, infiltrated, and and uh, imprisoned and killed uh, Black and Indigenous liberation movement leaders in this country. But Marco Rubio has sent the letter to the FBI urging them to open an immediate investigation into a U.S. anti-embargo group whose members uh, recently met with Cuban leader Miguel uh, Diaz-Canel. And he claims that the group uh, says they are acting as unregistered foreign agents of the Cuban government. And this, uh, this is a request that's into the FBI right now. I mean, when we're talking about state sponsors of terrorism, this is how the U.S. uses the FBI to carry out the kind of domestic terrorism that we on the left always uh, receive uh, from this government and the FBI. This this is uh, the, the terrorism that it emanates from the United States where people who are in solidarity with Cuba are uh, demonized and hounded by the U.S. government simply for that act of solidarity. So what else can you tell us about this, you know, ridiculous claim by Marco Rubio that I I can't say that I don't believe the FBI isn't going to investigate? And specifically, this is the uh, Bridges of Love group. Right. Thank you. Well, Jackie, it really reminds me, it brings to mind immediately the quote of the Black Panthers, who famously said of the U.S. as they were attacking Black Panthers and other liberation fighters, they said that the aggressor aggressor is posing as the victim. And that's exactly what the U.S. does in its propaganda uh, to justify its war on people abroad and people at home. So the same thing that uh, Narco Rubio is doing, and he was jumping on it, I think because of the 
raid on the all on the Africa People's Socialist Party in Florida and California and one other state, uh, where they're being falsely charged with uh, being agents of Russia, and, and what and the implications of that accusation, which is not going to be tried because they're using a Russian person to throw this cloud over the APSP. But what the U.S. government is saying by this uh, charge against the Russian man and by implication to the APSP is they're saying you cannot challenge U.S. foreign policy. And they say in their charges, oh, well, you know, the APSP, they say they support Russia in the war. Well, that's not a crime to have a opposition to U.S. policy sending weapons to Ukraine. But it's a very dangerous development. And Rubio jumped on that and said, well, let's do this with uh, the Cuba group, Puentes de Amor, Bridges of Love, which is led by a man, Carlos Lasso, uh, who lives in Seattle but goes to Miami frequently because he is Cuban-American. And he's been doing these really amazing caravans, medical aid, taking milk to Cuba, cancer medicine for children in Cuba, trying to counter U.S. policy. And so you have these agents of evil, Rubio, um, Ted Cruz, uh, Maria Elvira, this new congresswoman in Florida who is a a rabid anti-Cuba congresswoman. They all make their careers by attacking Cuba. That's how they get into office, and that's how they try to help perpetuate policy. But we have to say, the tail doesn't wag the dog. They're not the ones who make the U.S. uh, impose this blockade on Cuba. They're the pretext. They're the excuse. But this policy has existed since day one of the Cuban Revolution 62 years ago. Absolutely. And speaking of Marco Rubio, you know, you were mentioning the Cuban doctors a moment ago, uh, Gloria. And, you know, uh, just last year in June of 2021, Marco Rubio and uh, Bob Menendez uh, introduced uh, legislation to combat the quote unquote human trafficking of Cuban Cuban doctors. And so they said that these uh, Cuban doctors were actually being trafficked. I mean, just the most ridiculous things um, to justify Washington's attack on this country. And, you know, uh, Gloria, I was also thinking about like when we talk about state-sponsored terror from the U.S. being aimed at Cuba, it isn't just the blockade. I mean, there have been real uh, uh, acts of violent terrorism that uh, uh, the U.S. has either directed or facilitated towards Cuba and has not been uh, held accountable for. I mean, the U.S. has given asylum to uh, uh, terrorists. I mean, they made political prisoners out of uh, uh, the Cuban Five, and there was a strong movement to free them that was successful that I know uh, you had a lot to do with as well, Gloria. And so at every level, the United States has done everything it can to try to destroy the socialist revolutionary process unfolding in this small island nation that today I think has a population of about uh, uh, 11 million people. And so, you know, it's also why this incessant propaganda from the time of the revolution excuse me, has uh, uh, been so necessary. But I feel like if one just takes a step back, I think really regardless of your politics, if you just take a look at the objective facts about what the United States has done to Cuba in uh, uh, the 60 or so years since the revolution, I feel like the identity of the real terrorists becomes clear. Oh, yes. I mean, you, I think you, Sean, have that book, The Fruit That Did Not Fall, 
about the long-standing policy that how the U.S. has always looked with envy on Cuba and deciding it will one one day belong to the U.S. and its expansionism of the 1800s, and and for a time the U.S. did uh, did occupy Cuba and then dominated for another 50 years. The I think the issue of Cuba is that when the United States propaganda, which is the biggest weapon, I think it's the biggest weapon that the U.S. has and been able to maintain this policy and this blockade. And the main way is to lie to the U.S. people by saying in Cuba there's human rights violations, um, exaggerating situations, when in fact the greatest human rights violation is the targeting of a whole people. And the United Nations, the Geneva Convention on Genocide, clearly states that targeting the people for whatever reason, when you deny them food, when you deny them the essentials of life, when you deny them their identity even, that it's clearly genocide. Genocide against Palestine, genocide against the Yemeni people, genocide against Cuba. And I think that Cuba, I believe that with all these um, obstacles and the blockade, the economic war, the hardships that Cuba has experienced because of the U.S., that it's very remarkable what Cuba has been able to continue achieving. First of all, that everybody continues to enjoy free total access to health care, including a biotechnology industry that has managed to successfully produce vaccines against COVID And therefore, you go to Cuba and see that 93% and more now of the population is vaccinated, which is a tribute to not only the scientific development of the vaccine, but the fact that people would accept and want a vaccine and be virtually totally vaccinated because they believe in their system, because they believe that science is primary. And so they don't have this debate in their country about whether you should or should not get vaccinated. If you want to live, you'll get vaccinated. And and yet for us, we're told that we're the model of democracy. While 40 million people face potential eviction, while tens of millions have no health care, and tens of millions more who have health care can't get it because they can't pay for it. You know, we know all the problems that we have in the United States, but we're told continually we are the best, we're the best, Viva USA, yeah, yeah, USA. And then quietly, but deadly, the U.S. imposes this policy of suffering on the Cuban people. And right now, you mentioned at the beginning that the U.S. said they were offering technical advice. Well, some of the right wing in Miami and other similar politicians have said, oh, look, Cuba's not accepting the aid and and so and so on. Well, the diplomats, the uh, Vice Foreign Minister of Cuba, Carlos Fernandez de Cosillo, issued a statement saying, we're accepting aid from everybody. And we appreciate uh, the phone calls from the U.S. and the technical advice offered. Although me, Gloria Lariva, I say, come on now. How many thousands of firefighters of the U.S. would gladly go to Cuba to help fight if they were just told by the government, let's go help our neighbor? How many people... Like what happened in New Orleans and the Gulf Coast after Katrina 
and other disasters in the U.S. How many people, rescuers, you know, people who are involved in us in in, in defense of the population, they go anywhere in the world to help others because that's the human spirit. And it's just a terrible shame and crime that we are all victims of the United States foreign policy. And, you know, I was in, <clears throat> in this delegation in Cuba that just ended in the, the last day of July. I was able to stay a couple more days and visit a maternal home because our delegation brought enough vitamins, prenatal vitamins, to cover almost every one of the 133 maternal homes they're called. What are they? They're homes where women who at a particular risk in their pregnancy live until they almost are time to deliver. Wow, what a concept. And I went to one of them, one in Old Havana, where 50 women are. I talked to some of the women. One young woman, she's young. She has two children already. And I said, why are you here? She says, because I'm carrying twins and I'm small. How many women in that situation here could certainly stand special care? And she lives there and, and really likes it. Another young woman said, um, I have high blood pressure. It's my first baby. And these are the kind of things that if people only knew what Cuba offers, they'd be like, why? Why don't we have that? Another thing is a new families code in Cuba. What a, what a great project. It's an updating of the family code from 1976, which was revolutionary in its time, but has been greatly updated with all the social developments of you know lgbtq relationships and everything that's happened in the struggle around the world for more and more equality among peoples this family's code for example not only provides for the same-sex union being recognized as marriages uh the right of gay people to adopt now but look at this grandmothers are able to apply now and receive grandmother care like you know maternity paternity care they can get paid to take care of their child's baby so if a mother wants to continue working but doesn't want to leave the baby to a babysitter the grandmother can get paid to take care of her grandchild that's beautiful and and, and yeah and the, and the parents get a year maternal or paternal leave paid that is amazing. Yeah. I'm just sitting here like, what in yeah. the... I can't even imagine a government being that concerned and caring for strengthening a family structure. Because that's what that is. That is supporting the family. That's what right. that is. And I, I just... Oh, my gosh. This country is criminal in so many ways just <laughs> for not being not caring about humanity to that degree here and for wanting to destroy Cuba because they do, Sean. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is the so-called, you know, despotic communist regime, you know what I mean, that's had this reign of terror over its people. And, you know, li like you mentioned, uh, Gloria, there is this popular narrative amongst the uh, right-wing elements that Cuba just won't accept aid or that they're the real motivation behind the blockade, which actually just doesn't make logical sense. Because the only reason the government in that situation wouldn't accept aid is as if they, like, somehow enjoy watching their people suffer. But when a government like Cuba 
Cuba, which has been so thoroughly uh, demonized in the minds of American people, well, then uh, they're more than willing to believe that. And what you're speaking to, I think, just shows how much Cuba even, you know, for, for for all of the struggles that it has under this blockade, still takes such great care of its people. I mean, you talked about the, the coronavirus vaccines, and I believe Cuba developed five. But you know what they didn't have when they needed it? Syringes. Syringes had to be donated uh, uh, to Cuba just to uh, uh, get this out. So things as basic as that are missing as a result of this uh, uh, criminal blockade. But we're going to talk more about this on the other side of our break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Gloria Lariva is here. And Gloria, I actually wanted to talk now some more about the Hatue Project, which is still pretty new and already working hard. Uh, now, it's an acronym that stands for Health Advocates in Truth, Unity, and Empathy, but Hatue was actually a person. So I was hoping you could help uh, uh, us understand, you know, just who is Hatue, uh, what is the work of the project, and what what is it that you all have planned? Thank you. Yes. <clears throat> Atoy was an indigenous man who lived on the island that is now Dominican Republic in Haiti. It's not clear which part he lived in, but in the early 1500s, soon after the colonization and genocide began by Spain and later Portugal throughout the Western Hemisphere, this South America, he and others experienced the genocidal practices of the Spaniards in his island. So when he learned that the Spaniards were now headed to Cuba to colonize, it was discovered by, uh, not discovered, sorry, it was uh, where Columbus landed in fifteen in 1492. But anyway, in 1512, Adwe took 400 men on canoe, which is really remarkable, to Cuba and began a guerrilla operation against the Spaniards. Unfortunately, he was caught. And according to Bartolomé de las Casas, the Spanish priest um, who often chronicled what was taking place in this genocide, he writes that when Atue was being tied to the stake to be burned by the Spaniards, they said to him, do you repent and accept Christianity so you can go to heaven? And he said, is that where you're going? And they go, of course. He said, no, I don't want to go where you are. I don't want to go where such cruel people will be. And so he's considered the first resistor to colonialism, the first martyr and hero of Cuba. So we're really happy to, to be able to have that symbol of Atue as the resistor to U.S. policy. And it's, we're, we're collecting funds 
we've gotten a great response from people. We already did deliver this medicine, the prenatal vitamins and other medicines essential for the women, the pregnant women at risk in Cuba in those homes. We did that in late July, but this is a bigger task right now. And we're working with many others. There's a national call that went out saying, let Cuba live. It's, it's circulating in the internet and it involves uh, four projects, Adwe, Code Pink, if go pastors for peace and the global health partners. And we're all in the same effort, a united effort to help Cuba because Cuba, if anything, represents unity of the people. And that's how we're going to overcome this crisis of the fire and the crisis of U.S. policy is by unity and solidarity. You know, the Cubans have a saying <clears throat> which I see all the time when I'm there, they're saying is, they go, we don't give of what we have left over to others. We give what we have. And that's true of them. You know, you said that they're, of course, accepting aid, but they also give it. And we have to go back to the time in 2005 when Katrina had devastated the Gulf Coast, especially New Orleans. I was there six days after the hurricane we were there on, on a, a truth commission to show that people were not looting. They were saving each other. And I received a phone call from Cuba of a journalist who said, we're with 1,100 doctors who have two backpacks on their backs or, you know, front and back. And they're ready to go to New Orleans. And Fidel had offered secretly to Bush because he wanted to help him save face, you know, Cuba, this little island helping the United States. <clears throat> And Fidel had said, we can be in New Orleans in five hours when you give us the go. We have five emergency hospitals with us, 1,100 doctors. And of course, Bush refused it, which is why Fidel made it public then. So the people would, of the U.S. would know and demand those hospitals and doctors. And since then, a new brigade has formed in 2005 called the Henry Reeve Brigade. And such a show of respect for the U.S. people that they named it Henry Reeve. It's an international mission that goes all over the world to help people in crisis. And why do they call it Henry Reeve? It was a young 17-year-old youth who had fought in the Civil War of the United States. Of course, that war ended in 1865. He was just very young. And when Cuba's independence war began in 1868, he was so inspired that he went to Cuba on his own. <clears throat> And he joined the revolutionary forces. They called him the little Englishman because he spoke English, which was kind of cute. He became a brigadier general very soon because he was so courageous. He died in battle. And they have his monument in Cuba. And in 1976, on his uh, 100th anniversary of his death, they issued a postage stamp, the Henry Reeves stamp. That's Cuba's internationalism. That's their humanity. <clears throat> a piece of U.S. history that we don't even know about. You know, Gloria, uh, what I keep coming back to is how uh, what lies at the heart of Washington's ongoing attacks on Cuba is the fact that this is a country that is going through its socialist revolutionary process and has made great strides in that process and will be able to do even greater things if it wasn't under the gun of uh, a U.S. imperialism. 
And for those of us uh, who are socialists or revolutionaries in the United States who take a look around uh, at this country, at this uh, imperialist uh, superpower, which seems hell bent on, on driving humanity into oblivion. I mean, what do you think are some of the lessons that we can take uh, from Cuba as we see the need to build a revolutionary movement here in the U.S.? I think the biggest lesson is what took place and is taking place during the pandemic. We don't, I don't have to describe what we went through during the Trump administration and still during the Biden administration, the disaster that didn't have to be. And the economic crisis for the people as a result, the deepening economic crisis. But I think if the U.S. and Cuba had normal relations that's the fault of the U.S., but if they had normal relations, the powerhouse that Cuba's biotechnology is, coupled with the resources that the U.S. has, could overcome so many problems. Medical, scientific, the fact that Cuba has a lung cancer vaccine that's now being tested in the United States and is very effective. So many other developments. Uh, how Cuba as a society resolves the problems of its population and guarantees true human rights, the the human right to housing and health care. But, you know, that's in direct contradiction to the United States system that we live under. U.S. imperialism, where the Supreme Court rules that a woman's essential right to our bodies is now denied to us by the dictatorship of the Supreme Court that eviscerates voting rights, that's about to issue more reactionary decisions, that is contemplating denying LGBTQ rights from trans youth to same-sex marriage. It's a world of great contrast between Cuba and the U.S., 90 miles apart. And therefore, it's incumbent upon us as people of the United States to find those links with the organizations that are opposing U.S. policy on Cuba and, and by extension, U.S. policy around the world. I believe that people are waking up. <clears throat> I believe that people, once they know, they don't turn back. <clears throat> it's a challenge, but it's one that I think we can look forward to of U.S. solidarity being extended to Cuba in these really difficult moments right now and to demand a real change in U.S. policy, a change that benefits other people and it benefits us. I believe that. I'd like to tell people how they can <clears throat> contact the Atwe Project if possible. Absolutely, go ahead. Yeah, it's H-A-T-U-E-Y, uh, T as in Thomas, atweproject.org. And we can tell you how you can help beyond even just donations, but there's much more. I think all of us in the, in the, Solidarity movement understand that the U.S. is a source of the greatest medical and medical equipment wealth, and and we need to tap into that. 
Absolutely. And once again, that's hatwayproject.org, H-A-T-U-E-Y project.org. And uh, it definitely is a challenge on this and so many other issues as it pertains to um, U.S. imperialism uh, because of the consciousness has been so uh, manipulated by the very capitalist class that is uh, uh, controlling and are really the authors of uh, the blockade against Cuba and also the authors of our suffering here. And I agree with you, Gloria, that uh, people are starting to wake up more and more. Indeed, I think the worsening of our conditions in this country are making it impossible to ignore. And so the contradictions of this capitalist system are just uh, uh, raging on and reaching a point to where I think people are uh, perhaps starting to really question whether this even is as we We've all been told the greatest system that there ever was and the only system that could ever logically work in the United States. But just as there was a time before capitalism, there can be a time afterward. And if we really want to see a critical resolution to all of the different problems, systemic, social, political and economic that have bedeviled this country for centuries, this country bred of genocide and slavery. Well, then there's have to going to there's going to have to be a completely new order, new society and new system out of which all of that springs. And that's exactly what the people of Cuba did when they carried through their revolution and the way that the revolution was able to be carried through then in Cuba is how it's able to be sustained now, which is with the support of the Cuban people. And this is true, despite the lies and misrepresentation of the imperialist governments and media. And so this is our task, particularly here inside the belly of the beast in the United States is to do what the people of Cuba did and bring about a new world for ourselves and the planet. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Gloria LaRiva, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.